Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be finishing up chapter 23 of Acts today, and I know we haven't been in there in a while, so let me give you a little bit of background to get you up to speed. Uh, you might remember that Paul finished his third missionary trip and returns to Jerusalem under the promise that God would spare his life there, even though it was dangerous for him. Many Jews wrongly accused Paul of telling the Jews that they didn't have to circumcise uh, themselves or practice any other customs that marked them as Jews. It was a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. Uh, what did Paul actually teach? What was the truth of the matter? In short, Paul encouraged Jewish Christians to remain faithful to the Jewish law, but Gentile converts would not have to be subjected to it. There was one exception for the Gentiles, and that was when you were in Jewish territories, you had to do your best to show respect and abide by basic Jewish customs. So even though it wasn't true that Paul was telling others to disregard the law, he was being prejudged, and many were unwilling to listen to any reason to the contrary. So upon entering Jerusalem, Paul participates in a Nazarite vow with four Jewish men, and they enter the temple square to demonstrate his allegiance to the Jewish law. The problem was that a group of nationalistic and racist Jews saw, a group of them, saw that uh, Paul, what they thought were Gentiles into the court. Now, whether they did this by mistake or they did this on purpose, we knew that they knew the truth later. But um, at this time in Acts 21.30, it says, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. The hatred for Gentiles and the rejection of Christ as the Messiah made for an intolerable situation. The rest of the book of Acts depicts how Paul was passed from one authority to the next to deal with him. A Roman cohort named Lysias, who was a tribune or head um, uh, of, a, uh, of the Roman soldiers at the temple, Lysias headed up this cohort, all right? Uh, he had Paul arrested and chained. Uh, he kept Paul from being killed by the Jewish mob. And Lysias thinks Paul was an Egyptian and then finds out he is, in fact, a Roman citizen just before he wanted to have him flogged. Knowing that he would not be able to get to the bottom of the original uh, beef with Paul, Lysias has him taken to the Sanhedrin, to the Roman fortress that was connected to the temple. And Paul proceeds to share the testimony of his conversion. Now, again, he's falsely accused. He's forced to give several defenses, not only in Jerusalem, but later in Caesarea and then in Rome. And as Paul deals with a variety of legal scenarios, he's able to demonstrate his innocence, but more importantly, a message he was able to communicate that was needed for all mankind, and that was that the resurrection is the source of hope for Jews and Gentiles. Despite religious leaders conspiring um, in, uh, in coming against Paul to try to kill him, 
God was still in control. God had a promise to keep, to protect Paul while he was in Jerusalem. And he did so through a variety of means. He did so with a nephew. He did so through Paul's sister. He did so with a centurion and the influence of a tribune. So what I want us to look at is Acts 23, verses 23 through 35, and discover what God has for us. Now, I'm going to ask for some latitude this morning because I'm going to delve into a lot of the facts of the passage for several minutes, and then I'll get at the end to some application. So would you join me uh, as I pray over our message and that God would speak to us. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take your word, this section of Acts 23, and do a wonderful work in our lives. I pray, Lord, that um, uh, you might encourage us, you might challenge us, and then in this scenario, through the life of Paul, might become something that, that stands in our minds as not only a great example, but motivation for us to also stand and endure as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting with verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So, two centurions are given the job to get a large contingency of soldiers ready. 470 troops are called into service to get Paul out of Jerusalem at nighttime. Now, the night began at 6 p.m., so the third hour means this was at 9 p.m. And I love the details of Luke, where he includes even the types of soldiers that were used in this endeavor. So if at least a hundred or a thousand soldiers were used at Antonia, the station that was attached to the temple, that would mean nearly half are used to guard Paul. The threat of Paul's life was so real, and the security for him was so needed, they ramped up uh, with all of these different soldiers to help this prisoner named the Apostle Paul. Now, this is the third time we read of Paul having to escape a city by night. Maybe that's an indicator of the life of the follower of Jesus, who is a truth teller to religious power. Their destination would be Caesarea, which was the seat of Roman government in that region. And Paul was to meet with Felix, who was the governor of Palestine beginning in A.D. 52. Now, Felix was the first slave in history to rise to the level of governor of a Roman province. His brother was a favorite of Emperor Claudius and later Nero, which paved the way for Felix to become a governor. Now, Felix thought he had the cover of nepotism, but this added to his corruption. The brutal measures he took to deal with Jews who rebelled against Rome stirred up more rancor between Romans and the Jews. Tacitus writes this, With all cruelty and lust, he exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. 
Now, he was known to hire hitmen to get rid of who he perceived as political enemies. Now, get the irony in, 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 in all of this. How ironic is it that Paul is safer with a guy who hires hitmen than he was with religious leaders of his day? That's our scenario. Then starting with verse 25, and he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So verses 25 and 30 give us a view of the letter Lysias writes to Felix. I want you to notice several things about the letter. The letter required that when a prisoner was forwarded to a superior, the subordinate officer was required to accompany the subject with a written statement of the case. He shows respect for his superior, Lysias does here, and brings himself the best, puts himself in the best possible light. Lysias conveniently leaves out anything that would incriminate him, omitting the fact that Paul was struck, he was put in chains, and he was almost flogged as a Roman citizen. I mean, the tone of this letter is found in these statements. I, Lysias speaking of himself, I came and rescued him. I brought him to the council. I found him innocent. I have sent them, sent him to you. And then I want you to notice another feature of the letter. Lysias says, I cannot find this guy has done anything wrong to such a degree that the Jews want to kill him. They are lacking in evidence. So Luke has consistent, consistently established the accusations that were made by all of these Jews that they are bogus. Then there's 470 men to protect a single prisoner. Actually, there's 471. The Savior of the world was watching over the Apostle Paul. Surely Paul must have chuckled just a little bit as he traveled with 470 soldiers and recalled how God had intervened with his sister and nephew. His real safety was to be in the all-powerful arms of his master. Remember that. When you see circumstances seemingly haphazardly working against you, the psalmist says this, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear, are fearful of, of him and delivers him. That's Psalm 34, 7. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night 
to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. We know that this group travels a little over halfway to Caesarea by starting uh, by, by stopping in Antipatris to spend the night. Now, Antipatris is about 35 miles from Jerusalem. It was a military station fortified by Herod the Great, and it was named after Herod's father. Being a Roman garrison, this location would protect Paul overnight. And most of the soldiers who made sure that Paul arrived at Antipatris safely, returned to Jerusalem, and only those on horse continued with him to Caesarea. So Paul stands before the Judean governor Felix, and um, accompanying him is this letter from Lysias. Felix, uh, Felix reads the letter and confirms that Paul is a Roman citizen from Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. Now, it was normal for a prisoner to be tried in the province where the alleged offense was committed rather than in his home province. And Felix decides to wait until some of the Jews um, accusing Paul could come and present their charges. Until then, Paul would be kept at Herod's royal palace, and it was now made into the governor's headquarters. This praetorium also housed prisoners who were to have their cases heard by the governor. So these are the facts of our story to close out chapter 23. But I'm left with a question of why Luke inserted several chapters of these episodes of Paul's life. I mean, from chapter 21 to the end of the book, and again, that's about at least 10 years, is a record of Paul's legal problems with Rome and the strife with Jews. The last chapter of the book includes this description. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason... Therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So from chapter 21 to chapter 28, Paul is a prisoner. And we read of a back and forth between Paul and the Jews and the Roman authorities. Now, there are no expanded uh, sections of injunctions or, or commands from God to instruct believers in these chapters. There's no great doctrinal treatise in these chapters. It is a repetitive story of courtrooms and injustice 
done to Paul, like watching continued repeats of law and order. It's not like a a few weeks or a few months, but 10 years of the same injustice of being falsely accused, dealing with civil and religious authorities. So what's the point? In chapter 22, he tell, uh, Luke tells of Paul's, um, writes about Paul's conversion, and it's of Paul giving his testimony. In chapter 23, he says, it is with respect, and this is Paul, to the hope and the, resur- and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. In Acts 24, he says, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Chapter 25, Felix testifies before Agrippa. He says that the Jews made assertions, but he didn't find enough evidence. And then says, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Chapter 26, Paul gives his conversion experience again, only this time to Agrippa. And he says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Chapter 27 is a story of a shipwreck at sea. And then chapter 28, in Rome, we read this. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. There is a repetition of problems and stressful situations from 21 through 28, but there is a dogged determination to testify about Jesus and speak of his greatness and his resurrection. The repetition of issues is something we can relate to. We may not deal with Roman authorities, but we deal with job stress, money stress, COVID-19 stress, relational stress, and a host of others. In the middle of that, we realize that God has not left us. God has not given us a vacation on our mission. Jesus Christ is still resurrected from the dead. And people now more than ever need to know the hope that he offers. Listen, as parents, um, employees or employers and citizens, we are faced with responsibilities that create for us our own routines and responsibilities, right? Our kids have practice. Our job has meetings. We have bills to be paid. The lawn has to be done. Dishes have to be cleaned. We have our own repetitions. We have our own stories and repetition through verses or through chapters 21 through 28, like in Acts. And we choose whether 
we will insist in the middle of these repetitions and stressful situations whether Jesus Christ will be the controlling interest of our heart and lips. I was asking the Lord today for an insight on this section of Acts, and Janet and I were on a walk, and we both shared from the passage, and I I loved doing that with her. And then a mail truck parked just a few feet from us. And as I came up on the mail truck, I said to the mailman, thanks for doing your job in the midst of this. And he kindly thanked me. Janet then affirmed that truth by reminding reminding me that her late father was a postal carrier. Come rain or shine, we get the mail. Come COVID-19, or maybe the carrier feeling a little under the weather, we get the mail. Come having problems at home. Maybe he or she are not feeling motivated. We get the mail. Maybe he wasn't or she wasn't encouraged. Uh, Maybe they weren't thanked that day. We get the mail. Think about this. We can come up with all kinds of excuses in our lives about participating in the kingdom, such as serving in the kingdom, fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ in a regular way, being equipped. But we also have the repetition of our own routines, including jobs, kids, practices, you know, a whole host of things, schools, taking care of things in the house, right? And in addition, we are presented with stressors of not feeling like serving sometime, not being motivated, getting our feelings hurt, not being encouraged, and a host of other things. Let me just add this, okay? We normally don't think twice about sacrificing for our children. We normally don't think twice about sacrificing to get a job promotion, right? These are things we're willing to sacrifice for. Now, these are, these are fair and good pursuits. And I bring them up just to remind us that all of us have priorities. We all deem things important enough to make sacrifices for. And I would suggest that we do those kinds of things for our kid or, or for our spouse. Why? Because we love them. We want to please them. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Come hell or high water, we will do whatever it takes because we do not want to disappoint those who are very meaningful in our life. These are good things. What I am proposing to you today is that we make sure that God is at the top of the list. All right? Listen, it's not a matter of duty. All right? If you just do it for the sake of duty, I'm telling you, it's not enough. Just like loving your wife just out of duty, simply not enough, right? We do it for love. And in this case, for God, for the one that we want to glorify. When someone you love needs something, most of us will sacrifice for them. That's what love is. Jesus said, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Paul said, do the will of God from the heart. As a child of God, I am given the priority to deliver the mail. That means we are servants of the king and his kingdom, advocates for the gospel, lovers of his people. Will it take sacrifices and is it hard? Things that matter are worth sacrificing for. And I would remind you of the reality of Paul. He said in his last epistle, at my first defense, no one came to stand beside me, but all deserted me. And if you're able to visit me, would you please deliver me my coat? I'm a little cold. Guess what? He still delivered the mail. Let me encourage you. Don't waste your life on on excuses and on ventures that have temporary payoffs. Let us heed the words that are in Mark 13. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have put them to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What do they save from? They are saved from earthly pursuits. They are saved from temporary ventures and given eternal purposes and rewards. Let us deliver the mail and do whatever it is that God is asking us to do to serve in his kingdom. Would you pray with me?